Hey everyone, Guinevere Lee here. Just before we get started, I wanted to let you all know that you can now read Lita and the Samurai on Wattpad. Well, you can at least read the first few chapters. They'll be going up about three months after the chapters go up on Chanilla.com. I also have some exciting news because I just launched a new podcast. It's called Take a Closer Book and it's an in-depth look into different novels, kind of like an audiobook club. Our first novel is The Princess Bride and if you stay tuned to the end of this episode, I've actually included the first episode of the podcast. All right, on with the show! Welcome to Historical Fantasy. I'm your co-host, Guinevere Lee. And I am Noel Sayar. The other co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are going to be talking about one of the three most beautiful places in Japan, Matsushima. Mm-hmm. Which literally means pine islands. But it's quite accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's extremely accurate. There's about 260 islands in the Bay of Matsushima. And I think pretty much all of them have a, at least one pine tree. At, you know, some are bigger than others. Yeah, but like the characteristic of this area, it has become made of like a sandstone. The islands are made of sandstone. Yeah, so like uh, because from the sea and also the wind, they have degradation. So they have a small island for maybe, I don't know, like a few meters, five meters like a lawns. And then they have like a mini cliff of <laughs> one or two meters. And so there's a little bit of grass and so there's one or two panes in the top that make it like a very, very peculiar. Yeah, because the the rocks are so soft and because the waves easily carve into them, they all have very unique shapes and each one actually has a name and a story attached to it. So it's a really popular tourist attraction. Yeah. And like I said, it is known as being one of the three most beautiful places in Japan. Do you know the other two places? Yeah, it is like Miyajima. Miyajima, yeah. And the sandbanks of... something. (laughs) (laughs) The sandbanks of something. Amanohashidate. Amanohashidate. The sandbanks of Amanohashidate. Which is the one of the three that we've never been to. Yes. Yeah, which has always been a bit of a pity. Yeah, it is in the northwest of island of Japan. The the main island, Honshu. Yeah, of Honshu, but in the side of like a China Sea. Yeah. We have to say that it is a little bit of a joke between us that it's one of the, th- the three most beautiful places because Japan yeah. has... Endless lists for everything. Yes. <laughs> like, this is, you know, one of the three most beautiful temples, or one of the three most beautiful mountains, or what. Like, everything has yeah, a list. Yeah, they have a list of mountains, a list of yeah. rivers, they have a list of everything. <laughs> so, it is quite amusing. But Matsushima really does live up to its name. Yeah. And because we lived in Sendai, we were about 30 minutes away from it up by train. Mm-hmm. So, we would go quite often. Yeah, so I guess we can just start off with a little bit of the history first. Yeah, please. Matsushima has always had people living in it. I mean, you know, as far as back as we can record in history. But it didn't really come to fame until Date Masamune, our friend Date Masamune, went there. Yeah, and in fact, they, they found like uh, some... like. Um Centered from the Yomon period as well. Oh yeah, like I said, they've had temples there. It has long been considered a holy place. And the really interesting thing about Matsushima 
as far as the religious history goes, is that there's all these cliffs in Matsushima that have been carved into. And this is something that's very common with Buddhism in India, but it's almost never seen in places like Japan. So it's very unique. And, and in fact, it was for the fact that they have made of like a sandstone that like a very easy to carve. Yes. So again, because of its... Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's easy to, to work with the sandstone. Other than Date Masamune, the other person who made it famous was Matsuo Basho, who is one of the famous poets of the Edo era. I think probably like, uh, the more famous by far. I think so, yeah. And I'm going to read the haiku he, he wrote about Matsushima, and I'm going to read it in the original Japanese. Ooh. Because this haiku needs no translation. Matsushima, ah, 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 Matsushima, ah, Matsushima, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. And honestly, for reasons become the best poet ever. I know. <laughs> you can't top that poetry. But when you go to Matsushima, it really does take your breath away with mm. how beautiful it is. And if I'm coming back for the list. They have the list of the four best <laughs> views from Matsushima. Right, I saw that. <laughs> I have like the list here. Well, no, I have it too. There's the magnificent view, the yes. beautiful view, the enchanting view, and then the grand view. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all from different, uh, I guess, different hills. Yeah, I mean, the like, the area was, like, uh, a little bit hilly and, like, uh, with a lot of forests. So, like, they have... A lot of good points. Yeah, I can't stress enough to you listening, you need to Google Matsushima Islands because you really need to see the pictures to understand. Yeah, it's very hard to describe the shape and just like the how the yeah. scenery it is. Yeah, Date Masamune, he definitely brought a lot of wealth to the area. And he also built one of the temples there, Ensuin. Ensuin, yeah. yes. Yeah, so Date Masamune built the Ensuin Temple as a memorial for his grandson, who tragically died while Date Masamune was still alive. Mm -hmm. It's one of those temples that you have to pay to get into. I think it was like 500 yen or something. Yeah, but, but like, um, the gardens really, really deserve oh, it. But it was so... I was actually just talking about it the other day. Because the entire place, it's covered in rocks, and there's no grass. But all the rocks are covered, but it's completely green, because all the rocks are covered in this very fine moss. So it's one of those places where it's very beautiful, but it's very delicate. Like, yeah. if you start walking over all the rocks, you would be destroying the moss. And then they also have those beautiful Buddhist Zen gardens of the stones. You obviously can't walk on those without destroying them. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really great example of impermanence, which is something that Japanese people really love. Things that, you know, break easily or... Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we all love things that you have to treasure. Yes. But yeah, it's definitely a tourist place. Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, nowadays, like, the main economic activity for Matsushima, it is the tourist. Yeah, most of the, the buildings there are either hotels or restaurants. And in addition for, like, uh, that temple, there's also, like, uh, one temple from, like, the Century 9, that is one of the oldest from the north of Japan. 
that is with made in the um, in the Heian period. Tsuganji? The, yeah, the Tsuganji. Yes. That also probably it is like a not the gardens they are not as spectacular as the other, but well for like the the history that they have also put like a Matsushima in the place. Yeah, I remember the first time that I visited Tsuganji, I was a little disappointed. Yeah. I mean, maybe because Ensuin is so beautiful and the yes. bay is so beautiful and then you go to this massive temple. And I mean, the inside was really nice, but the outside was just like, oh, uh. <laughs> you know, like the gardens were not that impressive no. compared to the other places. But well, but that demonstrates that Matsushima was considered like a sacred place for far before like the, um, the Edo period. Oh yeah. So it was, it was not a, like a, a coincidence that, that the Masamune chose that place. No. For, it, like made yeah, in Sweden. It was long considered a religious center. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the islands in the bay, they used to be that only monks could go on those islands. So it was forbidden yeah. for women, for example. I mean, mostly it was just well, forbidden for, for, for all the peasants. <laughs> well, I, there's like that one island in particular. It's actually called Man Island. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oshima. Uh, and that place, it was forbidden for women because it was... Uh, Oh, whatever. It was forbidden for women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the monks just wanted yeah, to chill. Yeah, reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's a little temple called Godaido. And that's the temple that it's on a very small island. Like, the temple basically takes up the entirety of the island. And to get there, you have to go over these beautiful red arch bridges. And the bridges, it's really hard to walk on them, actually, because it's not a complete bridge. It's a plank and then an open space yeah. and then a plank and an open space. So you have to take very wide steps. And apparently the reason that that was done was because women in their kimonos could not take wide steps. And so it was like... A physical disrupt. <laughs> yeah, it was a deterrent against women going on the <laughs> So maybe if the woman is brave enough, maybe we'll be able to go yeah. there. <laughs> so I, I really loved visiting those islands and walking yeah. all over them and spreading my femininity yeah. around. <laughs> but of course, the main attraction is the islands. Yes. And one thing you can do is take a boat out among the islands and, you know, learn the history of them. Like Whale Island and Turtle Island, I think those do kind of look like... a a whale surfacing, kind yeah. of. And the other one, well, it's just kind of round, so I guess I get the turtle thing. But it is the easy one. Yeah. The, the whale and the turtle in the water, it is literally <laughs> like a semi-sphere, so... Yeah. <laughs> but there is a few where I just completely disagreed. One, one of my favorite islands, it looked like a wave, but it was actually called Armor Island. Because it, I mean, in their minds, it looked like a plate of armor. <laughs> yeah. And the most famous one, the cruise always ends at this island and does a turn around it, is called Niojima. Do you remember this one? Nope. So it's supposed to look like a man sitting and, I don't know, meditating, I suppose. But when I look at it, I see a duck. What do you see? <laughs> for, yeah, for like a one particular point of view, 
look like yes, yeah. can be like a duck. No, no, every particular view, it looks like a duck. <laughs> <laughs> so Google out Neojima. Maybe I can put it on my Instagram. I think I've got pictures of it somewhere. Were there any other islands you remembered? No, not really. I mean, like uh, they're all like uh, really, really cool, but I didn't like uh, have a specific member of one. Yeah, and like I said, there's about 260, yes. so it's, it's hard to remember all of them. The islands basically saved Matsushima. Yes, well, and like uh, the bay the bay in general yeah. and the islands in particular. So as I'm sure most people know, in 2011 there was a very horrible tsunami that took out a lot of the eastern coast of the, the north of Japan. And that's where Matsushima is. Yeah, and, and like in the center was almost in the same level of Sendai. Yeah. So, like the area near Sendai, where Matsushima is, was the more heavily like a, like a the Maya, yes. like a, the wave. Except, because there were so many islands in the bay, they actually decreased the strength of the tsunami as it made its way through each island. So by the time it got to the land, I mean, it was still, it's still devastating, but... Well, but for the Matsushima city, it is almost nothing. Yeah, it was, yeah, pretty much every building survived. Yeah, I mean, like... Which a, is astonishing. The wave in Matsushima only rise like a four meter high. Yeah. That is almost nothing. It's about half of of how high the tsunami was everywhere else along the coast. No, far more. Wasn't it 10 meters? In the, the highest one was in like a Miyayoke, that Miyayoke? is like a some kilometers north to like Matsushima and was like a 34 meter high. You're lying. No. Oh my god. And well, it obviously like this area was completely like erased. Yeah, like that's, a, like that like the, the, the coastline. But like the the thing that happened for Matsushima is like in addition to the tourists, Matsushima and also like uh, the areas nearby, like uh, live from like uh, the fishing and especially for the cultivating or oysters. Yes, they're very famous for their oysters. Uh, and, and still be, um, but like uh, obviously like uh, the farms of oyster that was placed on the sea. Mm -hmm. was completely erased yeah. and they take like a couple of years for like a recover the soil and just like a make the industry again. So the economy was very, very heavily damaged in this area for this reason. But it's really interesting walking through the stores of Matsushima today because a lot of them actually have marked on the walls where the tsunami reached and uh, some of the stores have pictures of the place just completely filled with water. It's something that definitely affected Matsushima. I think they were able to recover economically a lot quicker than some of the other places just because there wasn't as much physical damage and because it has such a good tourist industry. But but in general suffer because the collateral damage. Oh yeah. Because the economy of the war region like we affected, Matsushima was affected as well. Yeah. And in fact you can see how like some areas recover more than others. And I think one good example is uh, Ishinamaki, that is one city like, uh, I think it's 50 kilometers north to like uh, Miyajima. Miyajima? No, sorry. It is 50 kilometers north of like uh, Matsushima. Yeah. And you can still be like uh, some like uh, Buddhist damaged, 
but also you see a lot of like of movement of young people that try to recover the economic of the city so they are making like a coffees they are making like a gallery arts and they have a, like a very vibrant like a movement for all of these young people like a trying to recover the city that make a lot of contrast because do you still see the two faces of the city mm -hmm. like a, the part of the city that it is not completely like a rebuild and in the same time this like a bloom again of the city for all of the young people trying to make new things so what you're saying is the millennials are going to save japan well, the millennials, I try to say this, this is more particular area. Yes. <laughs> but yes, probably like a Matsushima was like, sorry, Ishinomaki was kind of city that it is going down before the tsunami. Yeah. Because number one, the job city used to like uh, try to run away of the of small towns. And now that you see how all of the young people it is trying to come back and try to make the the town like a grow again and I think it was like a very good feeling when it was in, oh, in, in that city. It's so amazing to visit the places that were damaged by the tsunami and to see how far they've come in the years. Like when I moved there, it was only two years after the tsunami happened. So I got to watch a lot of this happen firsthand. And I mean, I still get a little teary just thinking about it. Um, it's amazing to... to to see how far they've come. And in fact, I, I went like a two years after, and because I used to like uh, ride my bike and I used to like explore with it, when I go out of the main cities to like uh, near the coast, I was be able to still see some like uh, destroyed houses or buildings that was not like a clean already. Uh, well, and you see also like the bend irons and in the former place of houses or buildings, that is a kind of like a sad to see. Yeah. Well, we are getting a little off topic now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to talk about Matsushima without talking about the tsunami. You're always going to end well, up Well, I mean, like, uh, it is like a part of the history yeah. of, like, uh, the region, so you cannot, uh, like, uh, obviate, like, uh, this thing. Actually, I just remember one of the saddest things from the tsunami. So from the Bay of Matsushima to Ensuin Temple, there's this road, and the road was lined with these beautiful, tall trees. Do you remember this? Like, hundreds of years old. They yeah. weren't pine trees, but well, it was it, a similar... Well, it's a kind of pine. Maybe yes. it was a kind of pine tree, mm -hmm. but it, it had a very straight trunk, and really, really, really tall. And because of the tsunami, a lot of those trees died, and so I remember when I first moved there, the trees were still there. And then they had to cut down pretty much all of them. Yeah. And it was so heartbreaking to see that. But, you know, like I said, they are rebuilding. They're replanting yeah. these trees. It's, it's not an overnight fix, but it, it definitely, if you visited Matsushima today, you would still be blown away by its beauty, oh, even, yeah. even I mean, with all the damage from the... Sorry. Absolutely. This is turning into a, a tourist, tourism yeah. podcast. You should visit Matsushima. And you should. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Try the Zunda ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Yes. And i also just going to plug my new podcast, which I'm doing by myself, <laughs> uh, because Noelle's not much of a reader. No, I am not. 
But I've started a new podcast called Take a Closer Book, and it's an audio book club. So we're going to be taking a look at the book The Princess Bride by William Goldman, and I hope you can all join us there. So until next time at Historical Fantasy, Itadashai! You don't question why you're running through a forest bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run, you scream, you cry. You run and run and run, and you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lita and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on Chanillo.com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast? Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home, or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on Chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. We were the first, and we will be the last. From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, the White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the White Snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth, and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsuhalpa. The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate, Tuhark, the merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit GuinevereLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E.com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by Bensound.com. Welcome to the first episode of Take a Closer Book. I'm Guinevere Lee, your host. For the next 12 episodes, we are going to be taking a deep dive into one of my favorite novels of all time, The Princess Bride by William Goldman. This is meant to be an audio book club. I hope you listeners read along at home, and I look forward to hearing from you. Your feedback will definitely shape some of the analysis I do here. This is going to be pretty spoiler heavy. It's difficult not to mention how things relate to later passages in the book, but I will do my best to keep all potential spoilers in the foreshadowing section at the end of the episode. And it will come with sirens and warnings, I promise. 
Now, before we go any further, I need to talk about the author William Goldman. I was blindsided yesterday when I heard he'd passed away at the age of 87. Here I was, ready to dedicate an entire season of podcasting to his genius, my graphics were already made, and then I learned of his death. I thought about selecting a different book, but realized I should continue with what I started. In fact, I'm glad I decided to start with The Princess Bride, because this is the best way I can memorialize such an amazing author who honestly changed my life with his work. Now, before I get too sad, let's talk about the novel. For those who want to read along at home, any edition will be fine, but I am personally reading the hardcover deluxe edition from 2017, featuring illustrations by Michael Mano Milvable. I love buying new editions of books because it gives me an excuse to reread something I love. This edition includes the 30th anniversary as well as the 25th anniversary introduction, both of which I'll be discussing today. Why discuss introductions? Because these introductions are very much part of the story. Now, let's take a closer book. Summary. Goldman opens the 30th anniversary intro by stating that the Morganstern estate is still entrenched in a legal battle over the rights of Buttercup's baby, letting the reader know not to expect any further chapters of the sequel to The Princess Bride. Side note, we will be looking at Buttercup's baby in episode 11. Goldman wants to share the story of how he first heard about the Morganstern Museum, but to get to that, he must first take us back to the movie set of The Princess Bride. If you've read Carrie Elwes' wonderful memoir, As You Wish, you'll see some overlap here. The 25th anniversary intro also shares some stories from filming. Goldman tells us about how Andre the Giant prepared for filming the movie by climbing the real Cliffs of Insanity. It's such a wonderful mental image, Andre the Giant scaling the Cliffs of Insanity without a harness. And while he doesn't say it, I like to think Andre would have worn his black wrestling tights. Eventually, Andre tells Goldman about the Morgenstern Museum. It takes years for Goldman to actually make his way to the museum. He travels to Florence City, researching for Buttercup's baby, but the museum is closed. Eventually, he ends up traveling there with his 10-year-old grandson, Willie. Willie being Jason's son, and Jason being a big part of the original introduction to The Princess Bride, which we will cover in the next episode. After a lot of sightseeing, they make it to the museum and are rewarded by coming face-to-face -face with the six-fingered sword. They also find Fezzik's clothes, Cat Rugen's life-sucking machine, and we learn that Stephen King has Florin ancestry. Goldman is hoping to gain access to Morgenstern's personal letters and writing, and King uses his fame to get Goldman in. But when Goldman arrives, there's been some mix-up and they won't let him in until he gets Stephen King on the phone. I like to think all authors have each other on speed dial for emergencies just like this. Finally, they let him in, and he gets to look at the diary Morgenstern kept while writing The Princess Bride. In it, Morgenstern discusses various changes he'd been contemplating to the story. Goldman remarks how he struggled himself while writing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, wanting to change the story but knowing he had to respect history. As Morgenstern writes in his journal, you cannot reverse history for the sake of your story. Goldman and Willie leave the museum, disappointed that they didn't find a similar journal for Buttercup's baby. When they return to the hotel, they talk about Buttercup's baby, and Goldman realizes Willie had found said journal and actually stole it from the museum. He opens to read, and then the 30th anniversary intro ends. We move back in time to the 25th anniversary intro, which begins with Goldman lamenting the fact that he wished he could claim to be the sole author of The Princess Bride, but of course the true author is and always will be S. Morgenstern. He talks about the trouble he had selling the screenplay for The Princess Bride, 
which he wrote after finishing his abridgment. He sells the rights of the book to the film studio, but the stress of the experience was so bad that it brought back his pneumonia, the same pneumonia that nearly killed him when he was 10. He ends up in the hospital and asks the nurses and doctors to read and act out the screenplay, the same way his father had read and acted out the novel when he was sick in the hospital at 10 years old. Unfortunately, the script isn't produced into a movie, so Goldman buys the rights to the novel back with his own money. Eventually, he meets Rob Reiner, gives him a copy of the novel, and finally the film goes into production. The novel was published in 1973, and the cast isn't assembled until 1986, so this was a long time coming. The intro then goes into more stories from filming, especially about Andre the Giant, which are all wonderful. The intro ends by explaining the troubles with the Morganstern estate. Analysis time! The Princess Bride, as presented in the novel, is a work of historical fiction by Florian author S. Morgenstern. I will be totally honest, the first time I read this book, years and years after the movie had become one of my favorites, I totally bought into the fact that S. Morgenstern was real, and William Goldman was merely publishing a translation and abridgment for his son Jason. I believed it for the first chapter or so, anyway. But Morgenstern is a fun fantasy and gives this story a unique twist. Every time I've recommended this novel to someone or bought them a copy, I have tried to perpetuate that myth. It's like believing in Santa Claus when you're a kid. There's just something more magical about believing in the fantasy. So I am sorry to let the cat out of the bag if you're new to The Princess Bride, but it's kind of hard to analyze a novel without these things coming out. S. Morgenstern is not real. Florin and Gilder, not real. Stephen King having Florian ancestry, definitely not real. I love how these introductions continue the story. Jason, who is not real, is now all grown up with his own son, Willie. And through Willie, Goldman shows us how keenly children were affected by the Princess Bride, by having several compete over who can say Inigo Montoya's famous line and having children saying it to the sword in the museum. I totally relate to this. I am an ESL teacher, and one time I taught a movie-themed lesson and had an entire class of Japanese people shouting, Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. It's freaking addictive. The intro ending with Goldman promising to finish Buttercup's Baby for an imagined 50th anniversary edition is absolutely heartbreaking to read now. I don't know if Goldman was actually serious about writing the sequel or if it was always meant to be a bit of a joke, but now that Goldman has passed away, we know with absolute certainty the sequel will never exist. Whatever stories Goldman had locked away in his mind are lost to us forever. In the 25th anniversary intro, Goldman starts by saying that he can't really take credit for writing The Princess Bride. Obviously, in the fiction of the novel, there is another author. But Goldman is actually saying that the success of The Princess Bride wasn't his novel. It was the movie, and the movie took countless people to put together. This is made clearer when he then goes into the process of how the film was made. The truth is, the screenplay for the movie was written before the novel. And after the studios passed on the screenplay, he decided to rework it as a novel and published that. The fact that the film got made was a miracle, but it was the miracle that kept the book alive. He states very clearly that if it weren't for the movie, there would be no 25th anniversary edition. Now it's time to take a look at the foreshadowing, or otherwise known as Spoiler Zone. So, if you don't want any spoilers, you're definitely going to want to skip to the end. I didn't think there'd be any need for a foreshadowing section here, but since Goldman tells the reader in the introduction how the book ends, I guess I have to discuss that here. When Goldman is talking about his trip to the Morgenstern Museum, he reads Morgenstern's diary. 
and learns that Morgenstern almost had Inigo die at the hands of Count Rugen. This is obviously Goldman's way of sharing that he almost did that. He pokes fun at the stupidity of the thought, especially in hindsight, since Inigo killing Count Rugen is arguably the most powerful and memorable moment of the entire novel and movie. In conclusion! Alright you first time readers, it's safe to come out. In the next episode, we will start on the proper novel, which also opens with an introduction, one that sets up the author's personal history with the novel. Thanks for joining me, and if you have some thoughts, you can reach me on Twitter at Guinevere Lee. That's at G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E. Did I miss something? Do you have a different opinion? Let me know. Now, as a special treat, here's a real Spaniard giving us Inigo Montoya's famous line in his native language. Hola, mi nombre es Inigo Montoya. Tú mataste a mi padre. Prepárate para morir. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> Michael Manum... Manamivible. 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 Hope I got it right.